It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, remembering Yuan Longping, the father of hybrid rice. And how geothermal energy production could affect seismic activity. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up, reporter Noah Baker has been speaking to historian Shellen Wu about the life and work of the Chinese crop scientist Yuan Longping. Yuan Longping is a name that in some parts of the world people will know very well, and in other parts of the world they may not know so well. And this week in nature there is an obituary because he has died at the ripe old age of 90 years old. To start off with, can you tell me you know, who Yuan Longping is for people that might not have heard of him? Yes, so in China and in other parts of the world, Yuan Longping is known as the father of hybrid rice and innovations that he made fed billions more people. And so hybrid rice was one of the kind of outcomes of what was called the Green Revolution. This was a moment in which agricultural scientists started to find ways to create hybrid versions of staple crops that would increase yields and really revolutionised how the world fed itself. And Yuan Longping made this discovery with rice, which is, of course, a really vital food crop for a huge portion of the world's population, especially in China and much of East Asia. And yet he did it in a very difficult time for scientists to work. Can you tell me about the context in which he did some of his early really vital work on hybrid rice? When Yuan graduated from college, he actually went into college right in 1949. So when the People's Republic of China started. And at the time, actually, agricultural science, as well as crop genetics, which he studied in college, could potentially be a very controversial topic. And that's because in the 1950s, Chinese scientists followed the lead of Soviet Union and the Soviet agronomist Trofim Lysenko, whose idea was that you could environmentally train crops 
these ideas actually did not work. Nevertheless, because it was the Soviet example, Chinese scientists were supposed to follow it. And some of the leading Chinese geneticists who believed in Mendelian as well as American geneticist Thomas Hunt Morgan's ideas about genetics and heredity, they were persecuted. And one of Yuan's teachers committed suicide in the 1960s because of persistent persecution. So it was actually a fairly controversial area of studies. And Yuan's parents also opposed him studying agricultural science because they thought it would lead to a life of hardship. By the time that Yuan Longming was working, staple crops like maize and wheat elsewhere in the world had already had hybridized versions discovered, created, I suppose, of them, which increased crop production, increased yields. But rice is a much trickier crop to do this with because it self-fertilizes. So trying to find hybrid versions of a, of a crop which fertilizes itself is very difficult to do. Yes. So in 1961, Yuan saw this naturally occurring hybrid rice. And he immediately realized that there must be out there possibly male sterile plants. And if there are male sterile plants, this means that potentially down the line, you could then develop hybrid rice seed. So how do you find that? Well, in 1964, in the height of summer, he and a student did this the hard way. They went into the countryside, they went into rice fields, you know, the hot sun is beating down on top while below they're knee deep in water, and they manually looked through miles and miles of fields for male sterile plants, which they discovered in the wild. This was the innovation that he reported in an April 1966 issue of the leading Chinese science journal, Chinese Science Bulletin. And that paper proved to be really important, not just in the development of hybrid rice eventually, but also to Yuan to continue his work, because that came at a really crucial time, again, culturally within the People's Republic of China. Can you explain how that worked? Yes. Yeah, so his April 1966 article came on the eve of the Cultural Revolution, which started in earnest that summer. So there are those who would be identified as counter-revolutionary. At Yuan School, there were 200 teachers and staff, and this is the absurdity of that moment in history. They had quotas to fill. 5% would have to be identified as these, quote-unquote, cow demons and snake spirits, these counter-revolutionaries. They would become targets of very intense persecution. Yuan did not come from a good class background, as that was known at that time period. So he was one of the 5%. And right when he was already identified in a spot reserved for him in prison, this was when a letter arrived from the national leadership and the provincial leadership praising the potential of his research. So school officials then had a choice. And this counter-revolutionary label was given to someone else. Yuan was allowed to continue working, and he was actually given a consultant role in these experimental fields around school. And then moving forward, he took many students under his wing. He continued to work with them to develop um, this research. And from that point onwards, he did not 
place his name on papers as often as you might expect someone who is such a revolutionary name in science. So in the Maoist period, the ethos was that this was not about personal fame. It's about the party. It's about the country. And it's also about mass science. This is why his name, other than the 1966 article, which very fortunately kind of saved him, did not really appear on the, his research. And yet, despite his name not appearing on much of his research, or certainly the published output of his research, he has been very well remembered within China and around the world because of his contributions to science. In fact, you've mentioned in your obituary that he was chosen to carry the torch at the 2008 Chinese Olympics in recognition of the significance of his work. Yeah, and his fame really started in the late 1970s and particularly in the 1980s. And that is when you see these Maoist ideas begin to fade away. But Yuan himself, to the end of his life, talked about how he turned down high-paying gigs later on as an international consultant. You know, he said, what do I have to do with all this money? And we see these major agricultural companies patenting genetic seed, hybrid seed. Yuan really believed that these innovations do not belong to any individuals or for enrichment, but rather that they would enable food security in a greater part of the world. And he freely made available his innovations. So Yuan Longping has now died at the age of 90. And we find ourselves looking back at really quite an extraordinary life an extraordinary scientific life, an extraordinary set of challenges that he overcame, impact that he had. What do you consider, as someone that spent some time thinking about his life, to be his legacy moving forward? And are there lessons that people can learn from the life and work of Yuan Longping? I think what I find truly remarkable is that here is someone who worked incredibly hard, and he never retired. He just thought that, you know, what would I do in retirement? So he continued working, trying to make the next leap in yield and expressing this great optimism that with science and technology, you could keep making progress and that this increase in food yield could bring about peace and contribute to world security. And I find that truly inspiring, this idea that we could use science not just for national glory, not just for personal gain, but also to improve humanity. That was Shellen Wu from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville in the US. We'll put a link to her obituary of Yuan Longping over in the show notes. Coming up in the show, we'll be hearing how long-term geothermal energy production could affect earthquake aftershocks. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read by Shamni Bundel. A mosquito perfectly preserved in ancient amber is an iconic image. But amber isn't the only place paleontologists can find prehistoric insects. Researchers may soon be turning to something less visually appealing, ancient poo. Scientists used a type of CT scan to investigate the insides of a 230 million-year-old coprolite, that's fossilised faeces, from, in this case, the Triassic dinosaur relative Silosaurus. 
they were amazed to see it contained an incredibly well-preserved beetle, complete with intact legs and antennae. The insect is a previously undiscovered species, representing an entirely new family of beetles. The researchers who found it think that prehistoric poo could be hiding a treasure trove of other ancient insects, and they're encouraging people to scan more coprolites to build a better picture of ancient food webs. Find that paper perfectly preserved in current biology. The bacterium Yersinia pestis is best known for causing the bubonic plague that spread through Europe in the 1300s and may have killed up to half the population during the Black Death. But according to new research, it may not always have been so dangerous. Scientists studying DNA from a 5,000-year-old skeleton were surprised to discover evidence of the Y-pestis genome. This particular bacterial strain is the oldest ever discovered, but although it may well have killed the hunter-gatherer whose bones it was found in, it appears that it may have been a lot less transmissible than its medieval sibling. The ancient strain was found to be missing the gene that let fleas act as a plague vector, a key part of the spread of the Black Death. The researchers believe that this particular infection may have come directly from a rodent bite and wouldn't have spread easily between humans. Catch that paper over at Cell Reports. With ongoing climate change, there's a pressing need to find alternative energy sources. One promising example is geothermal energy, using the Earth's heat to make electricity. Typically, fluids, often water, are pumped down into the ground to be heated up by the energy from beneath the Earth. These heated fluids can then power turbines and we get electricity. Geothermal power plants are often in seismically active regions, where natural fractures in the Earth's crust grant easier access to the heat below. But so-called enhanced geothermal technology can also be used, and this creates fractures in rock to get to the heat. Typically, this increased fracturing means that geothermal power plants tend to increase seismic activity in the area. This is well understood and managed by the power plant operators, who try to keep the resulting earthquake small. But this week in Nature, a study of a geothermal power plant in California, known as COSO, has shown something surprising. According to the study, after a large earthquake in 2019, aftershocks spread throughout the region, except for one place, exactly where the geothermal reservoir used by the power plant is. More small earthquakes should happen, but it didn't happen. This is KJ Im, one of the authors of the new study. Oh, the surrounding area, they, they have uh, aftershocks, as expected. But this is not the area of coastal. I was surprised. And my boss was surprised as well. So we're thinking about what's, what's going on here. It appeared that the COSO plant was interrupting the expected aftershocks from a nearby earthquake. Now, there are other researchers who have found conflicting results, and so KJ was keen to investigate further. So he and his colleagues looked back at the seismic activity since 1981, and it appeared that, as expected, the amount of earthquakes around COSO increased at first, but after 10 years, the activity declined. 
But why? KJ has a hypothesis. It's a thermal contraction. If the reservoir gets cooled, it shrinks, and the stress that is pushing this reservoir is released. In other words, as the plant sends down water to be heated, it in turn sucks out the energy that would usually build seismic stress. KJ says that some of the energy is released as seismic activity, the small earthquake seen when the plant first started production. But then when the 2019 earthquake hit, it was unable to propagate through the land around Koso as the energy and stress in the area had already been released, and so fewer aftershocks. To figure out how likely this hypothesis was, KJ simulated the effects of the geothermal plant on the forces within the Earth. We did the simulation of the reservoir. If you inject that cold water and extract that hot water and do the circulation, and then what we find is that the stress has to be quite significantly released. And that is consistent for the last 30 years of seismicity generation. More data will be needed to confirm this simulation. But for KJ, it seems to align with observations of the seismic activity of the region. Not everyone is in agreement about this, but if KJ is right, it does beg the question, could geothermal power plants, in the long term, help prevent earthquakes? This is very speculative, but KJ believes that there is at least a possibility. Instead of you have a few big earthquakes, you can just release the stress by having many small earthquakes. But at the same time, this is, this is a little dangerous because you don't know what's going to happen when you do the development. You're artificially release the stress of the big fault. You, you just don't know what's going to happen. It could be a big one. That was KJ M of the California Institute of Technology in the U.S., You can find out more by having a look at his paper, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now it's time for the briefing chat, where we talk about a couple of our favourite stories from the Nature Briefing. Nick, what have you got for us this week? Well, I've been reading a story that's featured in Nature this week about human evolution and some possible new lineages to the human story. Well, Nick, it seems to me that there's been a lot of additions to the human family tree. What's going on here? Yeah, you're right to say that because since 2000, there's been a lot of new lineages discovered by various scientists. But this time, there's a couple of fossils of skulls, or parts of skulls at least, that have come from China and Israel. And the researchers suggest that these could be different lineages, or in the case of the Chinese one, could even be a new species of hominin that coexisted with Homo sapiens. Well, seemingly quite a lot going on then. Should we start with the Israel find then? What's it telling researchers and what is it? So the Israel find is a few skull fragments, a piece of the side of the skull and a jaw, and this was found at Nesha Rambler. And so this is dating back to around 140,000 to maybe 120,000 years ago. So around the sort of time that modern humans, Homo sapiens, would have been there and possibly Neanderthals as well, although that is not quite clear. So what this is, is it's got a jaw that looks sort of like a Neanderthal jaw, but the skull fragment 
looks more archaic. It looks like more of an older lineage of human. And it matches up with some other fossils that have been found around Israel. And so the authors of the paper regarding this have suggested that this is a group of people that they're calling the Neshna Ramla people that coexisted with humans and may have even sort of traded with them, interacted with them, because they seem to have similar sets of tools that modern humans did. So they're not saying it's a new species, but it seems like it's part of a lineage somewhere between older archaic species from Africa and Neanderthals, although that is quite controversial. Some people believe that actually these are just older Neanderthals. They're not actually a distinct lineage at all. If the kind of the feeling there is that this maybe isn't a new species, what about the find in China? Because you say there that maybe people are leaning that way. Yeah, so this is a well-preserved school that was actually found in the 1930s, known as the Harkin School. It appears to be a 50-year-old male from 140,000 years ago. And this one is a bit more unique. So while with the Israel fossil fragments, I said that it looked partly like a Neanderthal and partly like some other species, this one seems to be quite distinct. So the authors that have done the study on this fossil have suggested that this is an entirely new species that they've dubbed Homo Longi or Dragon Man, which is naming it after the nearby river of where it was found. Now, this is a little bit controversial to name a new species because typically you need more fossil evidence than just a single skull to do that. Now, there may have been some other fossils that were also part of this species. There have been some other unusual fossils found in the region, but we do need a bit more evidence, some scientists are saying, to say this is actually a new species. Well, Nick, I mean, that seems to be getting to the heart of the matter a little bit. Of course, we cover ancient human remains a fair bit on the podcast and how they might all fit into the family tree. But of course, they're so vanishingly rare. What needs to be done to confirm the hypotheses of these two groups and and their findings? Well, Ben, it's something that I feel like I say quite a lot on the podcast, and it's that we need more research and more findings and certainly more skull fragments and other fragments of hominins to really figure out what's going on here. And the thing is, we don't have DNA evidence for a lot of these. Like, DNA is long since gone for many of these old fossils, and a lot of it is open to interpretation as well. You're looking at the shape of the skull or, like, certain features and things, and to say what is one species and what is another is well, as I say, open to interpretation. And in fact, one of the problems may be, according to someone that was interviewed for this article, is that for Homo sapiens, our species, there is just such a wide diversity of fossils that we have designated as Homo sapiens that it's really hard to say what is and what isn't because it's so variable. So maybe actually what we need to do is basically start all over again and just start from zero and reclassify everything into different species because it's possible there's a lot more diversity, but we've just categorised things in the past and now we're sort of struggling to unpick it all in the present. I mean, that would be a huge undertaking though, right? So totally redo the the human relative family tree. Yeah, I think it certainly would be quite an undertaking, but maybe it's what needs to happen. But how about you, Ben? What have you found for this week's briefing chat? I've got a story that's also about fossils, but slightly different in this case, because it's about living 
fossils. Okay, well, you've certainly piqued my interest. So what can you tell me about living fossils? Well, in this case, I'm specifically talking about a fish, a fish called a coelacanth. And it's described as a living fossil because it seems to have existed at the time of the dinosaurs. And it was thought to be extinct for a really, really long time until one of these fish was caught in about 1938, as I understand. Now, they are super mysterious and there's really not many of them. There's only two populations that exist. And one of these populations, which lives off the east coast of Africa, is critically endangered. But a story that's been reported in science is giving a little bit more information about these mysterious fish and specifically about how long they may live for. Right, okay. Well, I imagine it's difficult because they're hard to come by, these fish, from the sounds of it. So how have they worked out how old they can get? Well, that's really at the crux of this research, Nick. And what's happened previously is researchers have looked under the microscope at marks on a particular scale on the coelacanth's body. And a bit like measuring the rings in a tree, use this to measure how old the fish is. And, and previously, they've estimated that this fish would live for about 20 years. But by using a different sort of microscope technique, a team of researchers have uncovered a bunch more rings that weren't visible normally. And this really changes up how long these animals might live. And in one case, they put one of these African coelacanths at 84 years old, which is obviously, you know, a lot longer than the previous estimate. Wow, okay. So it could be that they're living for a long time then. But how are we able to confirm this? Can we just watch one for 80, 100 years and just see if it lasts that long? What other evidence do they have for the age of these fish? Well, yeah, one of the problems is because these are so endangered, you can't just go and sort of pick one up, tag it and let it go. You have to be super careful with them, of course. So this research has really focused on uh, a museum collection. And this research has really uncovered loads more evidence as well. For example, uh, by looking at some embryos, they reckon that the gestation period for a coelacanth is five years and that maybe these fish don't reach sexual maturity until they're 40 years old which is quite something, right? Yeah, I mean, that definitely shoots the 20-year-old old estimate out of the water somewhat, if you excuse the pun. Uh, so what else can this tell us about this fish, the fact that they live for so long? Well, this research kind of puts the growth of these fish similar to other deep-sea fish like sharks, for example. Because if these fish lived for 20 years, as was previously thought, it was always difficult to chime with the fact that they grow really massive. They're like two metres long. They can be like 100 kilograms. And for a fish to grow that fast to this kind of monster size in such a short space of time was really, really unlikely. So this new estimate has helped kind of fit them into the box of where they live. And they seem to have a very slow metabolism. And they also reproduce really slowly, which again chimes in with their long gestation period. But they are, as I say, critically endangered. And it seems that this lifestyle, this kind of slow lifestyle, makes them super vulnerable to things like overfishing and to environment change you know, and, and, and all the rest of it. So it just gives a new window into these sort of really mysterious living fossils. No, those are certainly interesting insights. Thanks for telling me about it, Ben. And listeners, if you're interested in more stories like these, but instead as an email, then make sure you check out The Nature Briefing. We'll put a link in the show notes where you can sign up. That's all for this week's podcast. But as always, don't forget you can reach out to us on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast, or on email, podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Petrichell. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.